appreciate our praise team always leading us to the throne room in song and meditation. Thank you guys so much for what you're doing for us. So let me just add my wish to everyone, whether you're here in person or you've joined us online, wherever you are in the world, a happy Easter Sunday. Of course, it's more accurately known on the Christian calendar as Resurrection Sunday. And there's a reason for that. Because in Christianity, there is not a more important event in the life of Jesus than his resurrection. Now, we all know his, his birth is important. It's really important. It's the incarnation of God, God coming in the flesh to dwell among us. His life and his teachings, those are truly important. He, he teaches us overtly what it means to live in the kingdom, and he shows it to us in the flesh, in his life and ministry. And, of course, his death is incomparably important. We focus on that all the time. However, if it ended there, If it ended there, if Sunday didn't come, if resurrection didn't come, then all of those events in the life of Jesus would not have been packed with the theological and actual power that they are packed with. Think about everybody. Everybody is born. Everybody dies. And everybody does something in between. And a precious few people do something in between that is Great enough or horrible enough that we remember their names in history books. They made an impact of some sort. But none of that compares to the epic nature of the life of Jesus Christ. To his birth and his death. Nothing compares. No one in history has ever done what he's done and triggered the largest, most expansive, most impactful movement and consequential movement in the history of humanity. And so if, if he hadn't been resurrected, it would have just made the significance of his birth and his life and death inconsequential. It would have, I mean, it would, it, would have, it would have sabotaged the very meaning that they carried. The resurrection is supremely important. Think about it. If, okay, so I was trying to say I'm struggling a little bit. Because when I was thinking about this this week, I'm like, I know I'm not going to be able to communicate what I mean by this, with the emotional passion that, I'm, that I have. So I was trying to think, what could I tell them? And this story popped into my head, for better or for worse. So when I was, just had moved here, I'd maybe been here a year, there was a movie that had come out called Napoleon Dynamite. And there was this student that grew up in my youth ministry in Houston that called me. We were still talking pretty often. And she called and says, so in the movie Napoleon Dynamite, I go, I haven't seen that movie. She goes, what? You haven't seen Napoleon Dynamite? Brian, you must see Napoleon. You must see Napoleon Dynamite because it is Brian Mash. You will love it. It is awesome. And so I'm like, okay, it was at the dollar movie. So Carrie and I on date night, we bought our dollar tickets and we went and watched and for the first hour and a half of this movie, I'm watching going, what is it? It's about this high school kid in the heartland, in the country somewhere. And I mean, it's got a really lame plot and the scenes aren't, I mean, something's kind of funny, I guess, but you really got to work to make it funny. I mean, if you, know what, if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. But then we got to the end of the movie as I'm questioning to my wife, why does Rachel think this was, and we get to this scene where Napoleon, he does this crazy choreographed dance on the stage of his high school in support of his buddy Pedro, who's running for class president. And I don't know what to tell you. Something about watching that dance. I mean, 
watching that scene in Napoleon's life, it like redeemed the whole thing for me. I mean, it like packed it. I just loved it from then on. To this day, I can see any scene from that movie that I thought was boring the first time around, and I love it. I just think it's hilarious. I can't explain it, and I can't really explain how Napoleon Dynamite is making my Easter teaching. But that is what the resurrection did for his birth and his life and his message and his death. It packed those things with the power that they have. That's what it did. And not just for me, but for the whole human race. It demanded, when Sunday happened, it demanded that even those that dismissed him in his day, they had to take him seriously. Those that really were against him, they fought to discredit that it had happened. And yet, it so assuredly happened that those that saw him died saying it happened. And it, it forced, the resurrection forced everyone to go back and look at the life of Jesus and everything that he had done a little more carefully. It demanded that we pay closer attention to who Jesus was, to what he said, to what he did, and what it all means. So if you're our guest, you are most welcome, and I hope you felt that because that is objectively true. You are welcome. We're glad you're here with us. You've caught us in the middle of this series that we've entitled The Work of Christ, in which we're examining what does the work that Christ did offer us? What is it that God is offering to us in the work of Jesus? And so last week we looked at uh, we looked at his, the work he did in Holy Week, leading up, the days leading up to the resurrection. And the next week, you're welcome back. We're going to be looking at a neglected part of his work, his ascension, and what Jesus offers us there. Love to have you. But today, we're looking at the resurrection. There's this scene where Jesus pauses with his first followers, kind of an eye in the storm moment. Things are crazy. They're really building. And he has this moment of peace with his disciples. And he looks them in the eye, and he asks them this question in John 13. Do you understand what I've done for you? Such an important question. It was important for them then. It's important for us now. Because I truly, I've explored this a lot. And I've explored a lot of other options a lot. And I truly believe that any human being that truly understands what Jesus had done for them, that human being, by sheer nature that they are a human being, they would be irresistibly drawn to Jesus. That any aversion to Jesus is because that person does not understand. And this is often the fault of Jesus' followers. But they don't understand what Jesus has done for them. Such an important question. So this week we look at what he offered in his resurrection. I'm going to let Paul who Paul is in, uh, he wrote most of the New Testament. In your Bible, the New Testament's made up of 27 books. There's nine different authors. One of them is Paul, but Paul wrote like almost a third of that New Testament part of your Bible. So he speaks of the resurrection a lot, its significance and its meaning. But I want to cover one passage where he's actually addressing people who are questioning the implications of the resurrection, which is what I want to talk about today. And by questioning the implications of the resurrection, they didn't know it, but they were actually questioning whether Jesus was resurrected. And that's an assault that happens to this day. And so he's addressing that in 1 Corinthians 15. Here's what he says. 
says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified that God, (coughs) about God, that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Those who've fallen asleep in Christ are lost. And worse, if only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. So there's lots here. Lots here, and sometimes Paul, when we read scripture, it sounds too Bible-y, you know, he's talking Christianese. But here's simply the bottom line. What God has offered us in the resurrection of Jesus is life after death. That's what is offered. We're told there's a larger story that doesn't end with death. He offered us, Jesus offered us friendship with God in that last supper on Thursday. He offered us the forgiveness of God on the cross on Friday. He offers us faith in God by staying in the grave on Saturday. But by coming out of it, the greatest offer of Jesus, the crowning jewel of our faith, the trump card over death, it is the offer of eternity, the defeat of death. It came in the resurrection of Jesus on Sunday. You cut the resurrection out. And it's arguable that all you have in Jesus is, I mean, what do you have in Jesus? Maybe a good moral teacher? But you'd even have to question that. Because this good moral teacher claimed he was God, and he claimed he would die and come back to life. And so if he didn't, you got to think he's probably not a good moral teacher. He's a little crazy. Even if he did say some accurate things or good things. And more to the point of today, if you cut out the resurrection... What you have, all you have, is this life. That's it. You've got your birth, you've got your death, and you've got what you do in between. And that's it. We don't think about this a lot. But Paul says we're to be most pitied if that's all we have. He says we have no hope in some future. We we lose that. We have no forgiveness. We have nothing to put our faith in. And we lose ourselves. And, and worse, we lose those we love to death. It's a loss. And that's all it is. If there's no resurrection. Now, there are some really good historical reasons to believe. <clears throat> and philosophical reasons to believe that the resurrection of Jesus actually historically happened. But I'm not getting into that today as cool as that is and important as that is. I want to stick with our question, Jesus' question. What do we understand? What did Jesus do for us in that resurrection? And bottom line, he gives us, here it is, he gives us what we need to deal with death. And this is not small. It's so easy to say, but this is not small because death is the one enemy that is universal to every single person in here and every single person out there. Death is the one enemy that all of us will and must face. And without the resurrection, without there being something after death, then death is an ending, and it's a horrific thing. It's not just the end of your life. 
Okay, that'd be the easiest thing to handle because you won't be around. You won't be conscious. It's, it's even more horrific to think about the, love, the loss of your loved ones while you live now. It's the end of life. It's the end of light. It's the end of sight. It's the end of beauty. But it's the end of relationship. And so some people say, well, Brian, that's, if that's how it is, if that's how it plays, play, that, and that's just how it is, and you need to accept it. But I, I've explored that. But there's something inside of me. This is outside of historical and, you know, apologetics-type thoughts, just inside of me. There's this something inside of me that tells me every time I encounter it or someone that I love encounters it in their life with a loved one that says death is wrong. There is something wrong about death. And there is, I know it's a part of life. It's a, you got to accept it. I know that there's truth in that and that is true. But I'm talking about a little bit deeper. Whenever someone loses a loved one, I have never met any of them not agree with this, that death feels wrong. It doesn't feel like an ending for some reason. Everyone says it feels like an interruption. Why is that? And it's because of this. It's because of love. It's because of love. When, think about this. When a loved one dies, the love you have for that loved one doesn't. It doesn't die with the loved one. Why are we built this way? Why did evolution make us this way? How did this come into being? If it's about survival of the fittest, it doesn't seem like that's very survivable. There's something in us that is saying, this is an interruption. You ask anyone who's lost a loved one, and ask them, has your love gone away? And their answer is no. In verse 6 of chapter 8 of Song of Solomon in the Old Testament, there's this phrase I use in weddings that came to mind. I love this phrase. It's just potent, but I haven't really sat and explored it until this week. It says, love is as strong as death. Okay. When I really sit, sat with it this week, I think about death. Death is, it is powerful. Like, it is unavoidable for all of the work that generations of humanity have tried to do to defeat death. No one's done it. It is powerful. Death, whatever it is, it is is powerful. It is strong. Ignore it all you want, but it's coming and it will happen. Love is as strong as that. So it made me think, when, not if, when your love intersects with death, this is two equal, powerful, strong forces that collide, and it creates a tension, and we have to do something with it. We can't leave it alone. That's how powerful it is. Anyone who's experienced it knows this. And in my estimation, it seems like there's only a, you have to resolve it. You cannot live in this tension. No one can. If they try, they go crazy. But, but the only pathways forward is either sadness and despair or comfort and hope. Those are the only options I have ever found and ever seen anybody need to try to figure out. And I've seen people take both pathways. This is why I need the resurrection of Jesus because I am determined 
to have comfort and hope. And I want to offer comfort and hope to anyone who's dealing with that. Now, instantly, the skeptic inside of me starts arguing with me. And here's what I just said. And starts saying, "Uh uh-huh, see, you just said it yourself, Brian. This whole Jesus myth, this whole story and gospel and resurrection, and you're just making that up to deal with our universal enemy called death. You're just trying to make, you're using that belief system as a crutch to deal with death. And to that, I say, yep. I, I do need a crutch to deal with death. That, that doesn't discredit it as not true just because I need a crutch. Just because you need a crutch for your broken leg doesn't mean the crutch doesn't exist. The question is, is it true? Does it work? Does it actually take you down the path of comfort and hope? That's how you know whether it's real, whether it's true. Of course I need a crutch. All the human race uses a crutch, I believe, for death. There's a commentator of the Bible named William Barclay that um, I use quite a bit. I refer to him on almost every week. I'm looking to see what he has to say about a passage. And he talks about this man named Dr. Johnson. I'd love to know who he is. He just says Dr. Johnson because Barclay says he's one of the greatest men he'd ever met. And he quotes Johnson as saying that fear of death is so natural to man that all of life can be considered one long effort to not think about it. (laughs) Everyone needs a crutch. Everyone's going to have to handle death. That's why it's our common enemy. So the question is, how will we handle it? Will we handle it with something that works? Something that makes it survivable? Something that makes sense of that love for that loved one that won't die? There's a verse in the Old Testament. I actually quoted it a couple weeks ago for another reason, but I'm going a layer deeper this week, but it was fresh on my mind. Ecclesiastes 3, where this epic statement of God, he says, he has set eternity in the hearts of men. That means there's something eternal in this temporary body. I think now, after reflecting on this this week, it's, I don't have a verse for it, but a lot of prayer and study and research, I think it's love. I think love is that eternal thing in us that will not die, that proves to us. It's the thing that's trying to be satisfied. It's the thing that gets hurt irreparably in one little way. Even if you believe in this, There is love continues on even when death of a loved one happens. And of all the religions and of all the philosophies out there, and I've looked into tons of them, I'm interested. I want the truth. I don't want my religion. I want the truth. Whatever that is, wherever God takes me on that. And so the only religion that agrees that eternity and God exists and provides, and this is important, an attainable way into it, attainable way into it, is the message of Jesus. It's Christianity. It's the only one. Not Islam, not Hinduism, not Buddhism, not any New Age variant. All of those, you check them out and see. They've all got their versions, but they are all the different versions of the same attempt of humanity trying to claw their way to God. They are all efforts at man trying to do enough, be good enough, say they're sorry enough, make up for enough that they eventually get to whatever that religion's version of heaven is. Only Christianity, 
Only Jesus tells us that there is a God out there that reaches all the way down to us and does all of the work so that we can make it to eternity, so that we can make it to heaven. Only Jesus says that. And our hearts know. There's a version of Christianity that is also just like all those religions. Often the fault of many of us Jesus followers, we have misrepresented the gospel and said, you've got to be good enough to get to heaven. You've got to be good enough to qualify for the sacrifice of Jesus. (laughs) Did you hear what you just said? Your sin is what qualifies you for the sacrifice of Jesus. He has done all the work, and our hearts know. Our hearts know. If we are going to make it to eternity, if we are going to be in this relationship with God, if love is going to extend beyond death, and our loved ones aren't lost, and our heart will be satisfied, if that's going to happen, it will be an act of God. It will not be by anything we can do. Not one thing. We know. Continuing with Paul, he goes on to say the good news of Easter even more directly. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who, he's just the first. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death, he captures the whole story of the whole Bible right here. It goes all the way back to Adam to now. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. What a ridiculous statement if Jesus hadn't been resurrected. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I want you to go back to Saturday for a minute. Saturday of Holy Week. So I want you to go into that. There's a garden where Jesus' body, dead body, was put in the tomb. And there was a stone there. And I want you to go into that garden. I want you to just take a minute. I want you to roll away the stone. We, we like to focus on the empty tomb. That's like a, it comes out of my mouth like butter. You know, just empty tomb. That's what we focus on rightly on Easter, but I want you to go to Saturday. Wasn't empty that day. If you rolled that stone away, you know what you would have found inside? The dead body of Jesus. And if you went in and you examined Jesus, that Jesus that you all think about, many of you worship and follow, on that day, unlike every other day, that day, you would have found that there's no brain activity in Jesus. Stopped. There's no heartbeat in Jesus. It's gone. There's no blood pulsating through that body. His body is limp, lifeless, powerless. Jesus, powerless. Dead. We don't like thinking about this image. We don't put it up on the screen when we take communion. We don't like thinking about it any more than we like thinking about our own death. But that day happened. It did happen. And there's a reality that comes with that visual right there on Saturday. A reality that makes death totally faceable. A reality that makes death death sting. Not quite so stinging. It steals its sting. It actually redeems death. There's a reality while you're standing there in front of Jesus' dead, lifeless, powerless body 
that actually changes death into birth. And it comes from this question. You're standing there on Saturday. What did Jesus do in order to be resurrected? What did the man Jesus, what did he do? This lifeless, no brain activity, no blood flowing through. What did he do to be resurrected? It hit me. Jesus did nothing. We're told by Paul and others, this was God's work. This was the Holy Spirit's role to breathe life back into Jesus and to resurrect him. Jesus' job was to do nothing. Oh, I guess he had to die. I guess he had to die in order to be resurrected. If there's anything he had to do, but for him to be reanimated, to come back to life, Jesus did nothing. Paul says it as concisely as I can find in this same book, 1 Corinthians, back in verse 6. This passage should be underlined in every single person's Bible, referred to from this day forward, when, not if, when death and love intersect and clash and you feel that tension, this is the verse you go to because it is our only means of hope and comfort. It is our only salvation from sadness and despair in the face of death. He says, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead. And he will raise us also. That is the gift of the resurrection. That there is life after death. And every single human being is going to need that. Every single human being is going to need that if they're not going to go into sorrow and despair. That's the message. That's the gift that's offered. And it's the most significant event, not just in the life of Jesus, but in the history of the world. So I want you to ponder this story in a little bit different way here. I'm going to ask Doyle to come back up. And we're going to sing to each other this story once again. And I want you to just listen to what you're singing and connect to it. And then I'll come back up and lead us in our weekly communion service in light of that. You can go ahead and pull out your communion cup that I hope you got when you came in. And just open up, if you're a guest, you open up that first little film and you'll find the bread there. And I want to go back to where we started. Billy read this out of Matthew's account. I want to read Luke's account of the first people, these courageous women who saw Jesus. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in cloths that gleamed like clothes, that gleamed like lightning, stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down in their faces with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. Then, then they remembered his words. Oftentimes when we take this little meal, this little remembrance feast, we, we typically, in Christianity in general, we typically go to the cross. We, we think of the cross. We think of his torture. We think of his death. 
and we go looking as we take this to remember him, we remember the dead Jesus. And that's what these ladies were doing. They were going to the tomb and they were going to look for the dead Jesus. And so just for today, just for today, maybe every week, but at least just for today, I want you to let these words of these two men ring in your head. You're looking for the dead Jesus. He's not here. You won't find him there. He's risen. And that means something. Let's pray. God, all that it means, I pray in the name of Christ that you would apply it to my friends and family here and all over the world, that you would teach us, show us what you've done for us. And as we take this flesh and we remember Jesus, we remember the resurrected flesh today that puts the power in the cross and makes it impactful. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Body of Christ. Then the cup, the cup might be why we are inclined to think about the cross because it represents the blood and we know that that's where it was shed. But today as you drink the blood, remember it would not have had his, its forgiving power because that's what it is. We have this, when we get baptized into Christ, we're being washed in the blood. That's part of the symbolism. But it does not have that washing, cleansing, forgiving, new life power, not without the resurrection. The resurrection is what put the power in that blood. It's what put the power in that blood. It's what consummated it. Let's pray. Thank you, God. Thank you, Father, for loving us so much that you sent your Son that if we believe in him, we will have everlasting life. Thank you, Son. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to come. I often think of this scene of you and the Holy Spirit and the Father sitting up there in the Trinity, the mystery that is the Trinity, and y'all looking at the mess we've made down here, and y'all looking at each other going, one of us is going to have to go down there and do the work that they can't do. And you, Jesus, raising your hand, saying, I'll go. I'll do it. Thank you, Jesus. And you, Holy Spirit, thank you for invading the earth for resurrecting Jesus' body. I pray that that same power that Jesus tells us is available to us is exerted again. And in every way that anyone here needs to be resurrected, anything that needs to be forgiven, anything, any area where they need new life in their marriage or in their walk or in their integrity or in their character or in some past trauma, whatever it is, God, move and resurrect. We remember this now in the name of Jesus we pray amen blood of Christ so I'll ask our elders and ministers and their spouses go ahead and move around the room and outside into the lobby and outside if you need a touch this morning have you heard there's an ancient you probably heard this many of you have there's an ancient Christian Easter greeting where somebody comes up on Easter and says he is risen and the response is he is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Amen. You know this, I know there's more for me to ring out of this verse in Song of Solomon that says love is as strong as death. There's more for me to discover and maybe I will and get to share it with you sometime. But that's why we as a church have committed to being a love first church.
is because God is love. And if we're going to be his representatives, his ambassadors, we're going to be loved. So that's what you'll experience from us first. At least we're not perfect at it. And and we're not perfect in any way. We might get a lot wrong, but that we want to get right. That we want to get right. It's the most important command of Jesus. And it's the very character of God. So that's what we're striving to be. So if you need this morning as you're leaving for your Easter day, if you need a touch of love, or if you just need to know maybe next steps in following Christ or more about Christ, that's why we're spread out here. That's why we're outside. We would love to have that touch with you. So let's stand and let's sing. And let me wish you happy Easter.